You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, Riverside. Thank you for gathering with us today. Uh, We come before God, and we're continuing to explore Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to pick up where Sean left off last week with this invitation from Jesus to ask, seek, and knock. And like everything in the Sermon on the Mount, we continue uncovering this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, what it looks like to flourish in God's kingdom. So as we come to the text today, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this space to gather together. Thank you for so many faithful people who are filled with your grace, who come together as a body here at Riverside. We thank you for this time to gather together, to worship, to pray, to be formed by your word. So as we come to your word together, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today's word is Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7. We'll go through verse 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, these words are a glorious and hopeful invitation from Jesus, right? Like before we come with all of our objections or perhaps evidence to the contrary, I just want to soak in this beautiful promise from Jesus that this is what flourishing in the kingdom looks like. Ask, seek, and knock, and you will receive, you will find, you will see doors open. Words of promise from our loving Lord and King. These are good gifts for the asking. That's what Jesus is telling us. And before we get to the like, but but what if, but what if, but what if, I just want us to really like, wow. This is God's posture towards us. This is his posture towards us. Just ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. Do you believe this is what God is like? Amen. I hear at least one yes. Do you, like me, struggle to really believe that this is what God is like? It's okay to admit it. I just did. I admit that when I pray, I don't always expect God to answer. right? I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to, but I struggle to pray expectant prayers, honestly. And usually it's not because I necessarily doubt God or his ability or that he's big enough, but more that I doubt my ability to discern the right things to ask for, okay? I don't know if anybody else can can relate to that. I sometimes really, really quickly say, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Before I've even really asked for the healing, 
or the deliverance or the blessing that I'm really seeking. And if you spin what I just said in a certain way, it could sound super spiritual, right? Oh, he just praised the words of Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. But I don't think that's actually what I'm describing. What I'm describing is also maybe not a total failure. I think of it more like another round in the lifelong wrestling that is life with God. Can anybody relate to that? A wrestling type prayer life. As N.T. Wright puts it, for most of us, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. For some of us it is, but for most of us, that's not the problem. The problem is that we're not eager enough to ask for the right things. Again, maybe you can't relate, but I can relate to those words. So let's break down the passage a little bit at a time and see if we can track with it a little bit more because that's what I've been trying to do this week is to track with this passage a little bit more because I, I realized reading it first time, I was like, I, I, don't, I, I got a lot to learn here. Jesus, work with me. And so uh, maybe you're in that same boat. But verse 7 again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will be find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now the language in this, this particular couple verses is pretty straightforward and actually kind of absolute sounding. And looked at again from a certain angle, it might even seem transactional, like depicting God as a divine ATM. Kids, an ATM is like cash or cash app or Venmo, but it's like a machine that you actually walk to and it actually sometimes gives you paper money for some reason. That's weird. But thinking of God and thinking of prayer in this transactional way completely misses the point. Instead, I think we need to look at wisdom literature. The language of the wisdom tradition, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and yes, much of the Sermon on the Mount itself. Wisdom literature often states ideals and best practices in a very matter-of-fact way, presenting the way things ought to be as the way they are. Presenting the way things ought to be as the way they are. And discerning readers know that there's a gap between the way things ought to be and the way they are, right? You believe that, that there's a gap between the, things, the way things ought to be and the way they actually are, yes? Okay. And our life with God very much so exists in that land between. This is why we ask, seek, and knock in the first place, right? It's another expression of our own longing for God's will to be done and his kingdom to come right here on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we keep asking. That's why we keep seeking. That's why we keep knocking. And some of the language in this passage is familiar with other places in the Sermon on the Mount. The invitation to seek recalls the call in verse six, chapter 6, verse 33, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Remember that? Jesus' words assure us of this too. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness and you will find it. Which brings us also back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. So I want to look at all three of those passages together and look how remi- remarkably similar they are. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek and you will find the one who seeks, finds. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. 
The promise is consistent. In every chapter, it's reinforced with different words, with a promise that we can bank on. And I think the promise at the heart is this. When we earnestly seek him, God takes care of us. When we earnestly seek him, he takes care of us. And both sides of that arrangement, both sides of that sentence are important. The earnestly seeking and the God taking care, right? They're both very important. Earnestly seeking God and his kingdom and his righteousness probably doesn't come supernaturally to all of us. Maybe any of us. Is that fair to say? I mean, we we all have our own kingdoms, our own ideas, or dare I say our own idols to attend to. Those are not always good. Certainly not the idols. And even if we do get our priorities aligned with God's, are we actually earnest in seeking or doing or sorry, are we earnest in our seeking or do we knock and then walk away if something doesn't happen immediately? If we don't hear those footsteps coming to the door, do we just knock once and say, oh, not here, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go take care of it myself. Is that how our prayer life is? Knock once. I don't hear, I don't hear God come. I'm just going to take care of it myself, right? Is that, is that our approach to this situation? James 4 offers what seems like some commentary on this teaching of Jesus. He says this, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Yikes. You covet, sorry, yikes was not actually in the Bible, that was me. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now that could appear to contradict Jesus' teaching, but perhaps it just fills it out a little bit that these things go hand in hand. And with the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount so far, it appears that the asking and the seeking and the knocking assumes that we are in the process of becoming the types of people described in the Sermon on the Mount, right? That we are living into, or doing our darn best, to live into Jesus' vision of the kingdom. Not perfectly, perhaps, but earnestly and humbly. James shows us some of the problems with cherry-picking a verse or two from the Sermon on the Mount without taking the whole thing seriously, right? We can say, oh, I like that verse, and try to apply it without taking seriously the rest of Jesus' teaching. But I've been focusing a whole lot on us here. And I feel like this passage is actually quite interested in God and who he is. So let's turn to God, the one who provides. Verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Things can go wrong on our end. We ask with the wrong motives, or we don't ask at all, or we don't have our eyes open wide enough to see the answers that are right in front of us. But at the heart of everything is a Father who delights, delights to give us good gifts. For us to find and to be found, for all those things to be added. 
to use the language of Jesus. Jonathan Pennington points out, Jesus is not making an absolute and universal claim that no child of God will ever suffer, but instead casts a hopeful vision that forms our understanding of God's character and way of being in the world. There's a father theoretically depicted in Matthew 7. The one who gives their child rocks and serpents and scorpions instead of fish and bread. And that picture is as far away from a picture of God than could be imagined. And it might be tempting to read this as like fun trickster dad. Ha ha. You asked for fish, but I gave you a rock. Isn't that funny? That's not what's happening here. It's not a trickster dad. And if Jesus is condemning fun, practical joker dads, I probably am not the only one in the room who is in trouble. What Jesus is getting at here are not tricks. It's active negligence of a parent who, when their kid asks for life-sustaining things like fish and bread, hands them instead venomous creatures which could actually kill them. There's multiple examples in Matthew's gospel alone of God providing fish and bread, right? For thousands of people. And we pray over and over again, as we've been taught to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, give us today our daily bread. And he provides, right? But what do we do when we seek as earnestly as we know how, but the answer from God still seems to be a resounding no. Anybody ever been there? You feel like you have earnestly sought, you have knocked, you have brought your requests before God, and the answer still seems to be a resounding no. When Jesus prayed to his father, to take this cup from me in the garden on the night he was betrayed, and the cup was not taken from him? Was that evidence of an unloving God or a God who breaks his promises? No. Jesus knocked, though, didn't he? What does happen is that in the midst of perhaps one of the most intense divine encounters ever, Jesus willingly submits his will to that of the Father, not through coercion or through a guilt trip, but out of a deep understanding of the weight of the situation and an overflowing love for the world and the people in it. So the fact that sometimes we do earnestly seek God and we still do not receive what we initially asked for does not change the fact that God loves us and desires the best for us. Quite the contrary. What God was about to accomplish in Jesus on the night he was betrayed was in fact the most complete demonstration of love the world has ever seen. But it is evidence that life is complicated. Life with God might be uniquely complicated. And that even with all of the assurances and promises given, we cannot comprehend, we cannot predict, we cannot control God. And it's just another reminder that God is not a divine ATM. All right, finally we get to verse 12. So in everything, 
Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. You all familiar with the golden rule? Heard it before? You might have that part memorized, the do to others as you would have them do unto you. Might be hanging in your kitchen of your childhood home or something like that. And it makes sense because that teaching is so brilliant and beautiful and timeless and concise and memorizable. Last Sunday, I was at the Camp Raybird Family Fun Day. Quite a few of you were there. Um, Awesome event. And I was over at the merchandise table talking to Kristen. And I noticed a sticker for sale that just said something like, respect God, respect others, no gum. That's all the sticker said. And I asked about it, and she said, those are the camp rules. (laughs) And I said... Those are the camp rules. That's it. Respect God, respect others, no gum. And I inquired about a couple other possible rules. And she had an answer for all of them. Uh, Yeah, that's a staff rule. Yeah, uh, that falls under respect God. Yeah, that falls under respect others. Yeah, that one falls under both respect God and respect others. And I thought, brilliant. And of course, the third rule could probably also fall under the first two rules. But apparently, it's a big enough problem at camp that it needs to be stated specifically as part of the big three, the holy trinity of rules, right? So I'll ask you, do you think that there are no policies and procedures and guidelines at camp other than respect God, respect others, no gum? You think that's the entirety of their rule book at camp? Probably not, right? There's probably some other guidelines, some other things that they have to abide by, even legal things that they have to do, right? Of course there are, but they can all be nestled under the headings of the big three, right? Which we all have memorized now. Respect God, respect others, no gum. Jesus is doing something similar here. And I don't think that Jesus got the idea from Camp Raybird. That's not what I'm saying. But Jesus is doing something similar here in how he makes a specific connection to the law and the prophets. This is something he did. So when he says the golden rule, he doesn't just say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He says, do unto others as you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. You may remember Amy's teaching from a few months ago on how Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In the same way, the golden rule does not abolish the law and the prophets, but it sums up the law and the prophets. What does that even mean, to sum up the law and the prophets? So Stanley Hauerwas, theologian, has this fascinating take on this. And he emphasizes the historical particularity of the golden rule rather than the universal application that we're used to. And here are some of his words with apologies to anyone offended by Hauerwas's hot takes on Kant's philosophy of ethics, but... Blake isn't here today, so I guess, I mean, if you're watching online, hopefully you're not offended. Um, I'm not going to unpack all that ethics stuff, but it's important to the quote. So here's the quote. Jesus knows nothing of a realm that Kant calls ethics. That we are to do to others as we would have others do to us is not ethics. According to Jesus, it is the summation of the law and the prophets. Kant sought to free ethics from historical particularity. Jesus 
calls us to live faithfully to the particularity of Israel's law and prophets. We'll say that one more time. Kant sought to free ethics from historical particularity, just universal principles. Jesus calls us to live faithfully to the particularity of Israel's law and prophets. Jesus does not say that now that we know the golden rule, and the golden rule was actually existed before Jesus, we no longer need to know the law and the prophets. On the contrary, we must know the law and the prophets if we are to know how to act towards others. Let us not forget that this is the same Jesus who told us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And the law and the prophets are now to be seen in the ministry of Jesus, where God's love for us is most intensely present. See, see what he's getting at here? We don't have this summation so that you can memorize this and then forget everything else. The summations give us context for understanding everything else and all those particularities. Jesus doesn't sum up the law and the prophets with a handy, easy-to-memorize phrase so that we can forget about all those things. What Jesus does here is remind us that standing behind every law, every invitation, every principle is a grounding social contract of sorts. If one of Jesus' teachings is confusing to us, perhaps if we look at it through the lens of doing to others as we would have them do unto us, they might make a little more sense. It gives us context and a little bit of the why behind the what. And then there's this language of as you would have them do unto you, which might give some of us pause. Isn't it a little selfish to think about ourselves? Anybody read that and think, why does it have to be about how I treat myself? Anybody, anybody read it that way? Many of, us are, many of us fundamentally view ourselves as sinners. That's kind of our first lens that we think of ourselves through. And we are, granted. We stand in need of God's grace, but we easily forget that we are also fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God, carrying that image and all the dignity contained therein everywhere we go, and that is before sin even enters the picture. And we live in an age where self-care can be a bit of a buzz phrase that can be weaponized to mask unchecked selfishness and narcissism. But I maintain, based on Jesus' teaching, that self-care is important. Indeed important. And by self-care, I mean something like self-understanding, self-awareness, and the fundamental belief that good things are not reserved only for other people, but for us as well. We don't just encourage others to ask, seek, and knock, but Jesus invites you as well, and me even, to do those things. So two weeks ago, Sarah gave us this incredible wisdom on the self-care of tending to our worry and anxiety. Naming it, processing it, working through it, giving it over to God. This was a beautiful contrast to the way most of us approach our worry, which is to stuff it, ignore it, or constantly complain about it. Thus giving it more power, more life, and then eventually suffocating us. I think the golden rule adds another layer another essential layer to this, specifically that self-care is a grounding for other care. And we're all about other care, aren't we? 
Self-care is a grounding for other care. You can't forget that the golden rule begins with other care. Do unto others. Those are the first three words. Do unto others. That is other care. But without some degree of self-care, we'll be clueless on how to love our neighbor and do what Jesus is asking us to do. If we believe that all we are deserving of is rocks and serpents, might we also pass that on to others when they make reasonable requests of us? Don't be bashful about receiving God's good gifts. That's what I'm asking you to do today. Don't be bashful about receiving God's good gifts. It will provoke you to share those very gifts generously to others. Before we come to the table today, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And the Lord's Prayer is a beautiful companion to today's text. It's addressed to our loving Father. There are elements of asking and seeking and knocking in the Lord's Prayer. It is anchored in his loving character of who God is. And it demonstrates how our own life with God is intimately connected with that life that we share with others. The parallels are everywhere between the prayer and today's passage. So as we come to the table today, I want us to notice and name the gifts mentioned in the prayer. So as the musicians come forward, I'll invite you to do that. I'm going to put the prayer up on the screen, I think. Yes, there it is. I'm going to put the prayer on the screen. And before we pray it together, which we will in a minute, I want you to shout out the gifts that you see in this prayer. What gifts does God give to the person praying? Just shout them out as you see them. Bread. What was it? Forgiveness. Deliverance. Daily bread. Shout them out. His kingdom. The ability to forgive. Guidance. His power. Acknowledgement. No temptation. Incredible, right? Why don't we stand together and pray the prayer together? together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.